Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is in Judges chapter 2. This is the sixth book of the Bible starting from the beginning. It's right after Joshua. Judges 2 is on page 201 in the Bibles around the room. Pastor Kyle is going to be preaching through chapters 1, 2, and a little bit of 3, but I'll just be reading the first 18 verses of chapter 2. At the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll reply, thanks be to God. And this is our spoken reminder that this is an utterly unique book, the only book breathed out by God. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaish. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. 
One true and living God, the great I am, we praise you for your justice and we praise you for your mercy. You are so faithful, Lord, committed to your covenant with your people, coming to their rescue again and again and again. You are so faithful to your promises. Your words are completely trustworthy. Expose to us how unfaithful we are, how we trample on and think lightly of your lavish love, committing spiritual adultery. Help us see the peril of abandoning you, that it is our destruction when we are against you. If we only call to you in our distress, you hear our cries and stretch out your hand to save. Illuminate your timelessly relevant word today to our minds and hearts. Thank you for your son whom you delivered over into the hands of his enemies so that we might escape your judgment and be freed forever from our adulterous hearts. In the name of our strong deliverer, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeray. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Kyle, for those of you who are guests with us. And I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to be a pastor at this church. Uh, Last week I was gone. I was in San Diego uh, preaching a men's retreat for uh, a friend of mine in our church planting network, Acts 29, uh, down in uh, San Diego. His name is Dwayne Smets, Pastor Dwayne Smets. He came and preached the men's retreat up here. You guys remember him? Um, so I went down there and returned the favor, and it was uh, really cool. They have like a bunch of Navy SEALs in their church, so I like, it was awesome. It was really cool, and uh, but it, it made me miss this church. And so if you're a member here, I, I want you to know I love you, and I love that I get to be your pastor, and I get to preach the word to you. So um, yeah, I love being here. And if you're a guest, welcome to Living Stones. This is a place where we love the Bible because we believe that God has spoken in the Bible and God has revealed himself in the Bible. And so what we like to do at this church is roll through different books of the Bible. And today we are looking at the super fun book of Judges. And we start that new book. So who's excited for the book of Judges, huh? All right, so um, open your Bibles to Judges. As Dre said, it's the sixth book from the beginning. And on the Bibles we said around the room, we're going to be on page 200, page 200. And we're going to be covering a lot of text today. We're going to cover chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 6. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, chapters are the big numbers in the Bible, and verses are the little numbers in the Bible, all right? So um, before we jump in, a couple observations about the book of Judges. Number one, the genre of literature that this is, is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. So when you watch a romance, it makes you feel warm and gushy inside, you know, and like, I know guys, you're like, I fall asleep and your wife's like all crying right next to you, you know. When you watch a romance, it's supposed to incite warmness in your heart. When you watch a comedy, it should make you laugh. When you watch a tragedy, it should make your gut turn. And that's what this is. This is a book that should make our guts like wrench a little bit because it gets ugly. Because the whole premise of the book is this. It shows us how bad things get when humans do what is right in their own eyes. And that's a phrase that occurs at the very end of the book. In the initial parts of the book, it says people do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And then at the end, it says they just start doing what is right in their own eyes. And that is the definition of what the Bible calls sin. So if you're new to Christianity, you've heard Christians talk about sin. And all that sin is, is doing what is right in your own eyes rather than what is right in God's eyes. And so this is a Bible that shows us how bad things get. 
And so as a church, we have said that we're going to call this book, our series for this book, Only God Can Judge Me. And the reason for that is it has a double entendre. It's a double meaning. Because in our culture, there's this phrase. You guys have probably said it or maybe heard of it. Like, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. You know what I'm talking about? People say, only God can judge me. Get off my back. And what we're saying when we say that phrase is this. I have the right to do what is right in my own eyes. And, and when we live like that, this book shows us, it leads to division, to destruction, and to death. It shows us a downward spiral of what happens when we live according to what is right in our own eyes. So if you can see the art over here around the cross, that's what that resembles. It, a downward spiral of what happens when we do live life how we want to live it. And it leads to death and destruction. The double entendre to it, though, is this, is that only God can judge us. <laughs> Truly, God is the judge of heaven and earth, and he is the savior of heaven and earth. And the fact that, and in the book of Judges, when you see the word judge, it, it doesn't mean judge like a person in a robe and a gavel, like a courtroom judge. The, the word judge in this book is more like a warrior leader who saves the people. So don't think Judge Judy, think Braveheart, okay? <laughs> this is more like Braveheart. And so when we think about this, only God can judge me. God is our Savior, amen, church? He is the only one who can save us from our sins. That should not incite you to sin more. It should incite you to hate sin. It, it, it should incite us to turn from our sins. So th there's a double meaning to that title. Um, and this book covers a span of four, over 480 years. So that's important to read because when you read it, and we're going to go through this for the next 11 weeks, it's going to seem like things are happening like this. But they're not. Over 480 years, that's a long time. It's longer than we've been a country in the United States. So this just kind of take that in perspective that even though it seems like God is acting fast, he's acting actually very slowly throughout the book. Um, in this book, there's lots of fun stories. Like next week, we're going to read a really fun story of God's epic victories of how he saves his people. Um, there's a lot of uh, battles and killing and blood. So all the guys are like, yes, this is awesome. But there's a lot of death. And that does two things for us. Number one, it causes us to wrestle with the fact that there is heinous evil in this world and that as humans, we are capable of doing horrible things. And number two, there's so much death in this book that you cannot read this book without facing your own mortality. You will die one day. And I will die one day. And we will all die one day. And the world will continue on. And that's what this book shows us. Ultimately, we might ask the question, why is this book in the Bible? Like it doesn't give us a lot of like instruction on how to live. Well, it shows us that the Bible is not mainly a book about morality. It's mainly a book about how bad we are and how much we need a savior. That's what this book is about. So it's a book of grace. So today we're covering a lot of ground. As I said, chapter one, verse one through chapter three, verse six. And as Dale uh, Ralph Davis, uh, the commentator on this book says, this section serves as the commentary for, or the, the introduction for the entire book. So it's like the visitor center for the entire book. So if you were to go to Hawaii and you wanted to visit Pearl Harbor, which got attacked, as you know, uh, by the Japanese in, on December 7th at 1941, 
and it was the thing that brought United States into World War II. Uh, if you were to go to Pearl Harbor on your own and walk around, you'd see a lot of ships. But if you wanted to catch the full story, you have to go to the visitor center. You have to see all the information about the sailors and where the attacks were and what happened. And that gives you a greater understanding of the whole thing. And that's what this section serves as. It serves as a visitor center. And the big idea of this section is simple. It's this. Half-hearted devotion leads to full-hearted rebellion. That's what happens in the book. Half-hearted, it starts with half-hearted devotion. It always leads to full-hearted rebellion. So we're going to look at it in three chunks. The background, the failure, and the cycle. So first of all, the background. The background is this. God has commanded his people to go into the land of Canaan to conquest and to drive out their enemies. So let's read verse 1 through 6 in chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into the hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, uh, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And so what happens is, going into this book, you need to know what happens in the previous book, Joshua. Uh, In the book of Exodus, which is before those books, God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. Egypt. He made them a nation. They walked around the desert for 40 years, and then God was bringing them into the promised land. The book of Joshua is the the book in which God describes him bringing Israel into the land of Canaan, which uh, is alongside the the, uh, Mediterranean Sea, uh, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. He brings them into this land. And he gives them the land. And so in Joshua, you see them going in and fighting their battles and basically breaking the backs of the army of the Canaanites. In Judges, we see them going and actually taking possession of the land to live there. And so the question that we have to ask before we move on is this. Why is God telling his people to go in and kill a bunch of people? Like, why is God commanding Israel to go in and kill all these Canaanites, to drive them out of their land so they could take it, and to destroy all their idols? Is God a racist? Doesn't Jesus say in the New Testament to love your enemies, not to destroy them? Is God schizophrenic? Is there two gods, as the heretic Marcion said? There's the God of the Old Testament who's a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament who's a God of love. What is going on here? Well, the answer to that question is this. We have to step back. We have to see that the whole of the Bible shows us, Old Testament and New Testament, that God is patient, but he is also just. Even in the New Testament, God is bringing destruction. Isn't he, church? Have you read the book of Revelation? The very end. God is patient with his people, 
because he wants people to turn to him. But there is a point when God's patience comes to an end and he brings justice because he's a good God who will punish evil. And so as we look at this text, we have to be reminded of four things. Otherwise, we won't be able to move on. The first thing is this, is that God is not acting irrationally. God is not just watching these people sin once and then he's like, go kill them all. God has been very patient with this land. We learn about this because in Genesis 15, verses 7 through 16, 500 years before Judges was written, God told Abraham that he was going to give him this land, but he said, not yet, because the sin of the Amorites who lived there was not yet complete. In other words, God was saying this, I'm being patient with them even though they're sinning against me. God's not acting irrationally. He's not like some of us had who had abusive fathers who you mess up once and he just flies off the handle. It's been 500 years of patience. The second thing we have to remember is this, is that God is a just judge. Have you ever thought about this? As humans, we, like, when we witness uh, children getting abused, when we witness somebody you know, or we hear about somebody getting raped or we see terrorism or we see racism. We want justice because we're made in God's image. We want justice because there's something in us that knows that evil is wrong. I mean, we want justice for little things like if we get honked at or cut off on the freeway. Because we are people who long for things to be set right. And that is not because we are good. It's because God is good and we're made in his image. And he is a God who will bring justice. He will punish evil. And the people that God is commanding Israel to go and drive out are not innocent people. The book of Deuteronomy shows us this. And in chapter 12, verses 29 through 31, it's going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it. It says this. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go into dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I may also do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So this shows us and several other passages show us that these people have been engaging in worship to false idols, carved images. And it was, goes so far that they would sacrifice their own children to try to appease those gods. Innocent children, they would kill so that they could appease those gods. And so after 500 years, God is saying, I've had enough. I've had enough. I'm going to punish them for this wickedness. And so he does. Now, it's important to recognize that if you look at verse 7 in chapter 1, which we just read, the king, Adonai Bezek, even admits that he deserves this judgment. He says, you've cut off my thumbs and my toes, which rendered him useless for battle, and he eventually caused him to die. He said, but I've done this to 70 other kings. And it's his way of saying, what comes around goes around, and I'm getting what I deserve. So we ought not to judge God for being just. He's a just judge. He has the right. Um, you know, we get this. Uh, I was talking with Pastor Gavin, and he said, you know, in 2011, 
when President Obama called in the strike on the terrorist Osama bin Laden, both Republicans and Democrats celebrated together because we knew that Osama bin Laden was an evil man who had caused a lot of destruction and that President Obama had the right to call in that strike. And because of that, we celebrated. And so in the same sense, we ought not to read this book and then condemn God. And there's a sense where we ought to celebrate that God is a God who does hate evil. And we shouldn't hide from that. And that God, because he is good, will punish evil. He's a just judge. The third thing to remember in this is that God is not biased. He tells Israel that if they do the same thing, he too will kick them out. Look at what it says in Leviticus 18. It's going to be on the screen. It says this, Do not make for yourselves unclean by any of these things. These things is referring to sexual immorality. For by all these the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. So what's God saying there? I'm giving you this land, but guess what? Whoa, scared me. I'm I'm giving you this land, but if you go in and do the same things, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to destroy you also. I'm going to vomit you out. I'm going to drive you out also. And you know what? That's exactly what happens in the Bible, isn't it? They start participating in these sins, and later on down the road, God calls the Assyrians and the Babylonians to come in and conquer them and take them out of their land. And so we see in this that God is not biased. He's not a racist. God has one standard for all of humanity. And so the challenge for us is this. As we read these first verses, it challenges us in two ways. Number one, it challenges us to remember that we have to let God be God. You are not God. I am not God. Everybody say praise the Lord. God is God. And we have to let him run this universe as he so desires, if he's God. And then the second thing is, we, it's a warning to us. It's been 500 years that God has been patient, but now he's bringing judgment. And it's a warning to us for this. We better not be presuming upon God's patience. God is patient with us that we would turn to him. And so is there anything in your life that you're like, yeah, I'm doing this. And I know God's not happy with it, but you're like, I'll repent later. I'll turn to God later. Is there anything in which you are presuming upon God's patience? Later might not come. So this is a warning to us and it calls us to remember, turn to God today. And so that's the background. The background is God said, go in and take for yourselves the possession of this land, drive out the Canaanites and destroy all their idols, lest you become like them. So what does Israel do? Just like every one of us, they fail. <laughs> they obey God, but they do it half-heartedly. Um, they start to show that they, their devotion towards God is merely a half-hearted devotion. It's a half-hearted devotion. And it starts immediately. Look at verse 2 and 3. Uh, well, in verse 1, they say, Who shall go up and fight against the Canaanites? And in verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given them into your hand. And in verse 3, look at what Judah does. Judah said to Simeon and his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted me that we may fight against the Canaanites. 
So do you see the half-hearted devotion already? They say, God, who's going to go fight first? And God says, the tribe of Judah. I've already, I've granted you victory, tribe of Judah. And then Judah, they say, okay, well, let's go get some help first. Let's go get the tribe of Simeon to help us out. And so already they show that they trust God, but only partially. It's half-hearted devotion. And so the next several verses, all the way up to verse 18, kind of shows that God grants them victory. And in verse 18, it says this, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory, and the Lord was with Judah. Let's not skip over that. God was with them. God was with them. And he took possession of all the hill country, but now look at this. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because the chariots had chariots of iron. (laughs) So that's weird, isn't it? God is granting them victory. And he's with them, but then all of a sudden, they can't do something. They can't beat these armies who have army, uh, chariots of iron. And, you, and a good student of the Bible would be like, well, now that's really odd. If God was with you, you should be able to do anything. It, can't God split seas so that you can walk right through them? Isn't this the same God who dried up the Jordan River so they could cross? Isn't this the same God who brought the ten plagues? Isn't this the same God who spoke all things into existence? How come they're having trouble with this army who has chariots of iron? The problem wasn't God's presence. It was their lack of faith in his presence. They only had half-hearted devotion. They were like, yeah, God is with us, but we really don't believe he's strong enough to take down this army. We really don't believe, so therefore we can't do it. We can't do it. And it gets worse in 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So Benjamin's like, well, you know, we won't drive you out. You can just, let's just live together. And then it gets worse. In verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of the Beshan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. And when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So there we see that they're not driving them out. They're like, well, let's not drive you out. Let's just make you, let's, let's make them slaves. Let's make them slaves. And then in 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. And in 30, Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants. And it just goes on and on. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. And 33, Naphtali did not drive. Do you get the point? They're not doing what God told them to do. They have half-hearted obedience. They're kind of doing it. They have like a well kind of kind of faith, a more or less kind of faith. We're more or less obeying God, but we're really not doing exactly what he called us to do, which was drive them out and destroy their idols. And we might ask the question, why? Why do they have this more or less kind of faith? Well, maybe they thought they weren't strong enough. They're like, yeah, it's kind of a strong army. I don't think we could take them even though God is with them right there. Maybe they thought they were more compassionate. Like, I know God told us to drive these people out, but they're really nice. And the men were like, and the women are really beautiful. Like, let's be compassionate. Maybe they thought they were more resourceful than God. Like, if we drive them out, then we have to do all the work on our own. But what if we made them slaves? (laughs) Then they'll do the work for us. Who knows why they didn't do it? But we know that them not doing it was them saying to God, 
We're going to do what's right in our eyes, not yours. They didn't trust him. And thus, the downward spiral of the book of Judges begins. Do you see? And so how does God respond? What will he do? In verse 2, verse 1, we see this. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So how does God respond to their half-hearted obedience? How does God respond to their incomplete obedience? He shows up. He shows up. Like, God sees them living a life that's a mess, and he's like, you know what? I need to show up. That's the grace of God. They didn't deserve to have God showed up. They deserved to be driven out themselves, but God showed up. And whenever you see the angel of the Lord throughout this book, it, it's, it's God taking on flesh before Jesus is born. So this is called a Christophany. It's pre-incarnate Christ showing up. Jesus is like, you know what? Let me go down there and let me talk to him. And that just shows us that God, even when we're a mess, God wants relationship with us. Did you know that? Have you taken comfort in that recently? Even when your life is a mess, God wants relationship with you. This is totally unlike the other gods. The other gods you had to sacrifice, you had to do these particular rituals to, to, to coerce them into doing something for you. But Jesus sees us in our mess, in our sin, and he shows up to us. He's the light in the midst of darkness. I was talking with Pastor Nathan at our Living Stones Elko Church. And he's like, I love this because it reminds us that God is not interested in saving us to make us a trophy on his wall in heaven. Like, yeah, look at all those people I've saved. No, he saves us because he wants relationship with us. He wants you. And there's probably been lots of people in your life who haven't wanted you. Maybe a parent, maybe a spouse, maybe your children don't want you. All the young moms in here say amen to that. But you know what? God wants you. God sees you in your mess and he wants you. And so he comes to you. That's grace. We don't deserve it. And then he speaks truth. And the, the basic essence of Jesus' truth is this. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who saved you. Remember? Because we have a tendency to have spiritual amnesia and we forget. Remember, you didn't save yourself. I saved you. And I brought you into relationship. And he's like, and I promise I would never break my covenant with you. That I'm always committed to you. That I'm going to give you this land. But you disobeyed. What the heck? <laughs> and he says, what is this that you have done? And Jesus is basically saying, you've put me in a precarious situation. Because I promised you two things. Number one, I promised I'd always be faithful to you. But I also promised you that if you disobeyed me, you'd be driven out. Now what do I do? That's what's happening right there. And so he says, here's what's going to happen. Verse three. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but you sh they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. So he's like, they're going to become thorns in your side. It reminds me of growing up around here in Nevada. We have these thorns called goat heads. You guys know what I'm talking about? These things are terrible. They're like the spawn of Satan is what they are. 
They pop your bike tires. If you step on one with flip-flops, oh man, it just hurts forever. That's what these people are gonna be to you because you disobeyed me. God will hand you over to your sins to show you how bad it really is sometimes. You think your disobedience, your sin, like going and pursuing this thing, it's lively and it's fun. But a lot of times God will hand you over to it to show you how bad it really is. And he says there, gods will ensnare you. Sin always leads to slavery. It always leads to a trap. Whereas God always leads to freedom. Sin always leads to slavery. And so how do they respond? In verse four, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, which means weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. So they responded by being broken over their sin. They responded with weeping. When is the last time you weeped over your sin? When is the last time you actually shed tears over the fact that you've been an idolater and worshiped created things rather than created God, creator God? When's the last time you've like really been broken over the fact that you've disobeyed his commands? When's the last time you've, you've really, your heart has hurt because you haven't trusted God and you decided to take life into your own hands? Oh, that Christians would weep more over their sin. But guess what? Weeping is not enough. Weeping is not enough. You have to turn from your sin. And the problem with what happens here is they were broken, but they didn't turn. Kind of like a little kid who gets caught for stealing candy at the grocery store. He's upset that he got caught, but he still tries to steal candy more in the future. He doesn't change his ways. He might even feel a little bit of sorrow in the moment over what he did, but he still goes back to his way. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. It's not enough just to be broken over your sin. You have to turn from it. I love how the Welshman preacher, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, it's easy to make a Welshman cry, but it takes an earthquake to change his heart. I think that could be true about Nevada people too. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it doesn't take much to make us feel sorry for our sin, but it takes a, a movement of God to change our hearts. The first sin that they had was incomplete obedience. They partially obeyed. But the second sin that they had was grief without repentance. Sorrow without turning. They didn't want to turn from their sin. They loved it. Now look at what happens. If you uh, read verses 6 through 9, it just talks about their old leader named Joshua who dies. And in verse 10, it says this, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So the half-hearted devotion of the first generation, guess what it leads to in the second? Full-hearted rebellion in the second. Half-hearted devotion always leads to full-hearted rebellion. So, as parents, that should cause us to tremble a little bit, shouldn't it? A lot of us ask the question, are my kids going to be worshiping God? This passage asks the question back, how are you setting an example? Is there anything, if I were to ask your kids, is there anything that competes with your parents' devotion to Christ, how would they respond? 
if they can start naming off, well, yeah, camping and, you know, this hobby and my sports activities. And yeah, we really don't prioritize worship and they would rather watch TV than, you know, like, well, what kind of example are you setting for them? Do your kids ever see you repenting of your own sin? Do they ever see you saying, I'm sorry, Jesus is not okay with this, but I'm going to turn to him because he's a God who forgives. Do they ever see you trying to identify idols in your life to get rid of them? If they don't, what makes you think they're going to follow Jesus themselves? This should cause us to tremble. And guess what? Living Stones, God has done a great movement in Living Stones, amen, over the past 10 years. Like, we have, we're launching a fifth Living Stones church. But unless we as this generation are fully devoted to Christ, we have no expectation that the next generation will be devoted to Christ. And so this passage calls us to have an eternal perspective. Be thinking about it in the big picture. And it also calls us to drive out our disobedience in the same way that Israel was called to drive out their enemies. You need to drive out your disobedience. Um, As the old Puritans said, kill sin lest it be killing you. Tim Keller notes in verse 19 of chapter 1, the reason Judah didn't drive out the enemies is because they said they could not because the armies had chariots of iron. But when Jesus shows up in chapter 2, he says, you would not. And Tim Keller says, there's a lot of things in our life where we say to God, I cannot. And God says back to us, no, you will not. And so I ask you the question, is there anything that you're doing, you know, in your life and you're like, I just cannot turn from this. It's too hard. And God's like, no, you will not. You don't want to and you don't trust that I'm powerful enough to defeat it. In what ways are you saying, I will not to God? So this is the story. The whole next generation has turned their back on God. So what now? And in verses 11 of chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 6, basically just lays out this cycle of what's going to happen for the rest of the book. Here's the visitor centerpiece. And what's going to happen for the rest of the book is this, is that Israel will be unfaithful. God will humble them. Israel cry out to God and God will reach down to save them by sending them a judge, a warrior leader like Braveheart. And so let's look at this together. Let's look at this cycle. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served Baals and they abandoned the Lord, the God, their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So basically what he's saying is in the land of Canaan, there was all these different idols. And they were known as Baals and Asherah. Baal just means Lord. And Baal was the god of uh, fertility and of weather. So he was the god of uh, multiplication. So both with humanity, but also with livestock and with uh, vegetation and fruit. So he was the god of fertility and he was also the god of weather. Uh, Ashtaroth was his girlfriend, his uh, sugar mama. And they believed that they needed the two together, working together in order to produce good things. And she was the god of love and war. I just think it's really funny that the female idol was the god of love and war. Because sometimes love feels like war, you know? Just, it's a lot of work. So they have these two gods. 
Baal, the male version, and Ashtaroth, the female version. And the way that you participated in worshiping them is you would have to do all sorts of different sacrifices and rituals. Uh, the worst sacrifice is that you, in a, in a desperate time, would kill one of your own children to honor them. And then also the other ways that you worship them is they believe that those two made it together to produce good things, but you didn't just witness them, you participated in it. And so as a worshiper of Baal and Ashtaroth, you, as a man or a woman, would go up to a temple or a sacred prostitute, and then you would join yourself to that person, and then you would expect that God would bring blessings. And so obviously God is not happy with this. So that's what's going on. And what I want you to call your attention to is that it says that they did not even know. It says they went after the gods. Uh, they abandoned the God of their fathers. So it wasn't that they didn't know who God was. It's that they didn't want anything to do with who he was. They bore the name of God's people, but they didn't know God. I wonder if any of us could be accused of that. Bearing the name of Christian, but not knowing Christ. And so they're unfaithful. And so what does the Lord do? Verse 14 and 15. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. So God fulfilled his promise that as they committed this idolatry against them, he punished them. He humbled them. As Hebrews 12 tells us, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And what you need to recognize here is that God got angry. God gets angry sometimes. He gets angry, and, and that throws us off a little bit because we think that God is like this gentle grandfather in the sky. But like, no, God is, God is a, a jealous God. He gets angry the same way that a father gets angry if his kids go to the neighbor and call that guy dad. God gets angry in the same way that a husband gets angry and that when he's being devoted to his wife and his wife goes and commits adultery on him. God gets angry. Like God's not like, well, you know, you win some and you lose some. What kind of, what kind of husband would God be if that was the case? What kind of father would that be if that was the case? God has righteous Holy anger that's not juxtaposed to his love, but is driven by his love. And what this means is this, is that if you are seeking after other things that is not him for meaning, fulfillment, and for joy, that bothers God's heart. It bothers him. He gets angry at that. But it also, he's compassionate because as soon as you turn to him, he's willing to welcome you with a warm embrace. He's won't, and that's what happens. So uh, Israel cries out. So the first thing is Israel's unfaithful. Then the Lord humbles them. And then Israel cries out. You see that in verse 15. And they were in terrible distress. So what does God do? Verse 16, here's how God answers. He saves them. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. 
Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So why did God save? Was it because they got their act together? Was it because they stopped cussing? Was it because they started acting holy? Is it because they started going to church and tithing and reading their Bibles? No, God saved them because he was compassionate. He says that he saw their cry, he heard their cries and he heard their groanings and he was moved with pity in his heart. This, this word groaning is only used three times in the Old Testament. The first time is in Exodus when Israel is enslaved in Egypt and they cry out to God and they groan to God. And God says, I have heard their cries. I've seen their affliction and I know their suffering." And so when you cry out to God, that's what God says to you. I hear your cry. I, 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 know, I see your affliction and I know your suffering. And because of that, I will stoop down to save. Commentator Ralph Dale Davis says, the same God who knocks us down stoops to pick us up. He stoops to pick us up. And that's the pattern of it. Judges. And this literally just says, and it just continues on through 3.6. They screw up. God humbles them, they cry out, God picks them up over and over and over again. This is the book of Judges because God doesn't want our half-hearted devotion. He loves us enough to knock us down because he knows as Paul Zoll says in his book, Grace and Practice, that God's office is at the end of our rope. And sometimes we'll never meet with God until we get to the end of our rope. And so God is willing to let you get there sometimes. And so, As a point of application, this passage serves as a warning and as an encouragement. The warning is this. Contrary to popular belief, we as humans don't have as good of hearts as we think we do. Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitful and wicked above all things. And so if we think we have a pretty good heart, it's because it's deceiving us. Our hearts are idle factories. Our hearts are always making things that aren't God, a sort of God in our life. We're looking to so many things for hope and satisfaction and and meaning and relief that aren't God. And that's idolatry. And you might laugh at these guys. Oh, they worship these, these poles named Ashtaroth and they worship this weird God named Baal. But we worship a lot of silly things too, don't we? There's a lot of things that we look to for hope, satisfaction, meaning, and relief. It could be nature. It could be how you look. It could be a relationship. It could be work. It could be a truck. It could be a vacation. It could be retirement. It could be your own kids' success. Anything that we look to other than God for hope, meaning, relief, and satisfaction is an idol, And God will not tolerate half-hearted worship where we come to Jesus and praise our hands in here, but then we're harboring our idols in our heart all throughout the week. So it's a warning. Turn from your idolatry because it's ugly. But it's also an encouragement that God loves us enough to expose our idols. He loves us enough to humble us. And he loves us enough to pick us up. And so this whole chapter serves as this, but it's just a big foreshadow to the cross of Christ where we see these two things put on display even clearer. 
more clearly. On the cross of Christ, we see a warning. Jesus is dying there for your sins. He's not crucified because he was a sinner. He's crucified because he's in your place and he's beaten, he's bloodied, he's beat up. And he's saying to you, this is how messed up you are. It's a warning. Have you ever wondered why couldn't God just save us? Why does it have to be such a gruesome affair? Because God needed to put on display how gruesome our hearts are. And so he's giving us a warning in the cross, but he's also giving us a great encouragement. If the cross shows us this is how messed up you are, it also shows us this is how much I love you. This is how committed to you I am. And I've said this before, that it wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love. He was there because he loves us. And unlike us who are half-hearted towards him, he is full-hearted towards us in his covenant. Praise be to God. Therefore, we don't need to fear repentance. We don't need to fear turning from our sin and turning to him. Because I know that a lot of us have that fear. We say, but God, if I turn to him in this, like what's gonna happen? My life's gonna fall apart. He'll probably hate me. No, he shows us on the cross that he'll accept you with open arms. So don't be half-hearted. Take this as your opportunity to give your full devotion to him. And if you're not a Christian in this room, maybe some of your beef with God and Christianity is that you've been witnessing Christians half-hearted devotion and it baffles you. You need to know that it baffles God too. And he gave his son so that we'd be fully committed to him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this warning and this encouragement. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that over and over and over again, you come to save us and you do so in these judges and you ultimately do it in Christ. Please grant us salvation. Help us identify the ways that we harbor idols in our heart and help us to turn from those things so that we can glorify you. Amen.